0: Thank you, Amy. Well, it's good to be back together in the Word this morning. If you have a little one through grade four and they would, you would like them to be in an age-appropriate service, you can send them downstairs at this time. You can keep them with you as well. That's perfectly okay. We love that. If you're a guest here today, we're glad that you're with us. We hope it's been a blessing to you so far. In the seat in front of you, you'll find a card that looks like this. If you would, before we're done, would you fill that out and just give that to me when, when, before you leave. Introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you. I get to know you a little bit, thank you for being with us. This will acquaint you a little bit about uh, with what we do here, also let you know some of the things that information you can get from us to help you uh, learn more about Berean. Also, if you're a guest here today, on Wednesdays, 5.30 to 6.30, we have a fellowship dinner. We'd like you to come be our guest. It's normally $4 a head, children under eat for free, but we'd love for you to be with us and at our uh, as complimentary tickets for you see Ethan on the welcome table on the way out and we'll make sure that we get that for you. Look at if you would chapter 15, God's plan for a healthy church. Study through the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and really this uh, this section that we're uh, looking at the reality of faith, the power of the gospel is an amazing section for me. It's been a joy to go back through it again. And of course, I appreciate the break that we had with where we had a number of uh, we had a message concerning uh, Christmas and all of that right around the holiday as Christmas landed right on the twenty-fifth uh, and right on a Sunday, and then submission updates and then a great message from John Sando to think about about fear and how to deal with fear last week. And so it's been a joy to be ministered to in that way. Ralph Waldo Emerson is noted as saying this. If the constellations appeared only once in a thousand years, imagine what an exciting event it would be, but because they are there every night, we barely give them a look. The truth of that saying was brought home to me on Wednesday night, just this most recent Wednesday as uh, we drove home from church and we got out of the car at, uh, at home. One of my sons pointed, pointed out and up and said, look, Orion is right there, Dad, and um, I looked up, of course, and before that I hadn't looked up, and I thought to myself, really, it's been a while since I have. And I think the familiarity applies to the message of the cross as well. Vance Havner says it well in an article entitled, Have You Lost the Wonder? He says, quote, it's easy to lose the wonder. The spirit of the age is against us. Iniquity abounds and the love of many waxes cold. We know too much, we've tried all the thrills. A lot of religious activity today has lost the wonder. We engage in shop talk about men and methods and ministry, but we do not exalt in the wonderful news that Christ died and rose again. It's there all the time. And so my prayer is, as we dive into this section, this next chapter, that, that really centers on squarely on the resurrection, that it really rejuvenates us in the wonder and the excitement that rightfully belong to the gospel. Now, as we work our way through this chapter it's going to be broken up into some handholds so that you can kind of track along with us the first section which is the one we're in now is the resurrection reality that's the good news the tomb is empty that's verses 1 through 11 and then we're going to move on to resurrection hope that's deliverance from our sins and that's verses 12 through 20 and then resurrection authority and that's authority over death and that's verses 21 through 28 And then we're going to move on to resurrection motivation, and that's to live and to witness and to endure as a result of the resurrection. That's verses 29 through 34. Then the resurrection transformation of our fleshly bodies, as Paul deals with what goes on in the future as a result of the resurrection, verses 35 through 49. And then resurrection triumph, our final victory, a passage you hear often at funerals, but one that's very relevant for us today, verses 50 through 58. Now look with me, if you would, to verse 1 of chapter 15. We'll have a quick review of, of Paul's opening comments as he mentions the impact of the gospel on the church in Corinth because it's been about a month since we've been in the book. So look with me, verse one, if you would. Now I make known to you, brethren, see where we are, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you also stand, verse two, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now pause right there. Paul is setting the stage to reiterate the gospel to them. Uh, These are born-again people who had lost the passion for the gospel, perhaps the ability to to appreciate its power, perhaps its wonder is lost on them now, Uh, not unlike what can happen to us. And the motivation, of course, to communicate it in the ministry of the gospel, which is the most important thing that Paul is going to focus on here. Uh, This message of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel is something all believers are to be given to. And here's the thing. It wasn't because they had never heard it before. Paul was with them 18 months. He obviously went through this with them. He'd explained it to them before. It wasn't because they didn't understand it because they had accepted it, according to the passage we just read. It wasn't because uh, they hadn't experienced the power of the gospel. So we're not talking about unsaved people. We're talking about saved people who had heard it before, had it explained to them, had accepted it, and they had experienced the power of the gospel. It had created for them, as we see right there, you are in which you stand. That's a foundation for life a secure place to stand, a fixed standard of living and the way to live. It was also the vehicle or the means of conveyance that God used to bring about their salvation. And we saw that word salvation, that Greek word sozo, as present passive indicative. It's a continuous accent, so that's the present tense. And the individual is being acted on on the outside, by, by an outside source, the power of the Holy Spirit, going to work through the presentation of the gospel. Now we went all we were through that process of how that works. So the idea here is that the believer is being saved. And Jesus did this in the past. It's a completed act. And he continues the process of salvation all the way through the sanctification to glorification. And the gospel is the vehicle through which the Holy Spirit goes to work and it comes by hearing the message. So if someone is saved then, if someone calls on the name of the Lord, if someone believes and confesses, it will be as a result of hearing the clear message of the gospel. So it's primary importance. Uh, Romans 10:17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the mystery of the gospel preached creates the obedience of faith through the power of the Holy Spirit acting on the individual. And then Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So there is specific information that is conveyed by the gospel that Paul preached that, that by the Holy Spirit must be confessed and we saw that word is to say the same thing and believed. So the verbs are in the subjunctive mood. Now, we saw this already, but it's important that you understand they are conditional, they're in a conditional sense. So salvation comes through the vehicle of the gospel as it relates to salvation and the volitional response from the individual in order to be saved. So the Lord is explaining the volitional response and not election here. How the gospel is communicated and how volitional response is acted on. The Holy Spirit goes to work, things have to be confessed, things have to be believed. Okay? So... We have to say the same thing, what, that God says about Jesus? We have to say the same thing that Jesus says about himself. We have to say the same thing that the scriptures say about Jesus. That's what it means to confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, to say the same thing as the scriptures say about Jesus, to say the same thing as Jesus said about himself, and to say the same thing as God the Father has said about Jesus. And then you have to believe. And your heart must avow all that the resurrection is intended to avow. And exposed all those things that he has exposed, you have to believe that. You believe in your heart that the verification of all Jesus came to be and to do. Salvation comes through the vehicle of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit goes to work so that a person can confess and believe. And we saw salvation can come to those who hear the word about Christ and believe the resurrection and confess Jesus' right to rule over them. Salvation can come to those who, another way the scripture describes it, hear the word about Christ and call on his name. Uh, Knowledge comes before faith, or believing or confessing. Knowledge comes before calling on the name of the Lord. There's some facts that have to be delivered in the gospel. Paul boils them right down to the most important things, and that becomes a model then for us. There can be also, as we saw, if you look at verse 2, a knowledge that doesn't produce salvation. Look at verse 2. Paul gives this condition in the last part there. He says, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless, he says, you believed in vain, Kata katakete, hold fast, that's a sailing term, uh, checking a ship's headway or to guide a ship on the right course. The idea is that Paul is under, helping them understand uh, this, this incontinuity perhaps in their own life. Perhaps they see something, someone who has been in the church a long time, someone who says some things that sound like they're a Christian. He just says, listen, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So there's this idea then, there's this continuous habitual action of a believer that is, Letting the word of Christ dwell in them richly, that's the mood of reality. It's a present, active, indicative, a continued proof of salvation is that the life continues to be guided by the gospel that brought salvation to them to begin with. So it's not just a, an historical event that we're talking about, oh, I came to receive Christ, and I just live however I want. The gospel impacts you all the way through. And so Paul says that is that indicator. It sums up really what the scriptures teach us, and that is that if people profess to believe the gospel, but haven't given or are not giving due consideration to what it implies and what it demands, they don't really trust Christ. They're not holding fast in the gospel. They weren't saved to begin with. And that's a common theme in the word of God. And Paul comments here at the end of verse 2, and it just illustrates the common warning of disbelief. Paul says, unless you believed in vain. And how he explains that is, is he says, what you did was a fruitless act in the past. Arist active, indicative. You, you believed at a point in the past, in vain. You believed in a fruitless act. So, that's another way to say you believed for no purpose. And They received this information. So what we can take away from that is this. They received the information, but they were not willing then, if we say the same thing that we just got through saying, they received the information of the gospel, and perhaps you have some anecdotal evidence about this. You've given the gospel out. Perhaps you've witnessed to a, a, a family member, perhaps a, a friend or, or an acquaintance or something. they give the gospel out. But they were not willing to say the same thing or they didn't regard themselves as the gospel describes them. They believed the facts of the gospel but thought that they were okay. They didn't really believe they were sick in their sin. And so then the Holy Spirit was not able to go to work there through the gospel because of that rejection. Men won't hold fast to the gospel because they love their sin. They don't want to come and have it exposed. Uh, They avoid or reject the gospel because it shines a bright light on the conviction of sin. And those who are unwilling to say the same thing about Jesus that we see in the word. So, the the saved now are the ones who are characterized by holding fast. The unsaved, those who are not holding fast and do not appear to have an impact of the gospel in their life. And again, we looked at a number of examples of that important point, and we won't go through that again. The outworking of saving faith is holding fast. The outworking of saving faith is continuing in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. And that can be recognized in the life, then, by recognizing his deity and living that way. So you're bringing yourself up under his authority. Respecting his authority, fearing to disobey—that's very, very common scripture uh, references. To fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To fear is the understanding that although you have this relationship with Him, that perfect love casts out fear. That at the very foundation of your relationship with Christ is what—a fear that He can deal with you however He wishes in relation to your sin. Correct? Now you should have that in your—that should be really the foundation, of bedrock. If you get through all the other stuff, if you're walking in a disobedient manner. In your mind, you should understand that the Lord has the right to deal with your sin any way he chooses. And he will do that to bring you back into a relationship, a close fellowship with him. But that fear is at the bottom. We work our way into obedience, just like your child as you instill that fear of punishment in them by corporal punishment when they're young. That produces as they grow a relationship of love and response and obedience to your word without having any more of that corporal punishment. But it starts there. It starts at that foundation. The Lord has the right to deal with your sin however he wishes. And so we're based in that. We have a a respect of his authority and fearing to disobey, honoring his majesty and worthiness and worshiping him in that way, giving yourself over to pure worship. I hope that you did that today. Regardless of how we may have messed up or interrupted that, I hope that your fellowship with the Lord through the hymns and through the musical singing and through the giving uh, in ministry, I hope that was a way that you worship the Lord. In purity, um, understanding his majesty, his worthiness, he's the one who's the source, and so you just give yourself to him in worship. And so that's that great, that's that great, two, two opposite ends, right? The fear of the Lord and the fear of his punishment, and this immediately giving way to just worship and glad to be in his presence. I'm yours, Lord, do whatever you wish with me. And so that's that wonderful uh, relationship that is holding fast to the gospel that came. And you submit to his sovereignty, and you trust in his mercy for your deliverance, and you hope in his resurrection. See, these are all, these are all symptoms of a right relationship with the Lord that work its way through the fabric of your life, surrendering to him as Lord, as Savior. Because that's what he is, and his, he has that right, see. So, what's the powerful message? If believed, if confessed, produces life change. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says in verse 3, I deliver to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, verse 4, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Stop right there. This is the fundamental set of facts upon which the church was established, especially the last part, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And as we noted, the whole chapter really expounds on that statement, 58 verses that are just going to break that all apart and the impact that that has in every part of our life. Paul said earlier in his letter, in 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, you remember, He says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, verse 24, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it's a stumbling block to the Jews, this resurrection of Jesus. It's foolishness to the Greeks, but to the redeemed, it's God's power and God's wisdom. And there's really no middle ground there, is there? It's, when you embrace the resurrection at salvation, you permanently place yourself in a place of ridicule. But Paul says that's precisely where the power of, and wisdom of God are found, right there in the resurrection of Christ. And it really is the basics. It's fundamental, it's foundational, it's indispensable. The message is imperative. See, these things are, are like the constellations. You want to make sure you look and wonder and enjoy and worship them, or worship their creator of them, rather, because they become so familiar to us that we forget how amazing that they really are. Then Paul indicates their importance. He says, verse 3, I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received. And that's a great example for our own witness model, isn't it? There are a couple key things we should take away from that statement. Number one, Paul didn't originate the message he gave them, and neither should you as you witness. Don't originate the message. Don't create it yourself. Paul said there are three basic things that you must be communicated in the gospel. Make sure that they get communicated. He simply passed on what he received. Paul isn't giving some views he's worked out for himself. Don't do that, okay? He's passing on what's been told him. The main trip up for our own testimony is the fact that we weave in so much of our life history that the gospel really gets watered down or excluded. And Paul says, I gave you these things that I received, and they were of first importance. And people cannot be saved without believing this message. It's essential to the faith. So in other words, if you don't communicate the cross, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, you don't have the right message. So make sure that's communicated. And then here's the standard. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. You can copy these down in your notes if that's helpful for you. So as you communicate this, these are some of the ways you're going to do that. Okay. Jesus' title of Christ, which means anointed one or Messiah, that's his true identity. That's who he is. He's not just a good teacher, he's not just a righteous person or whatever, somebody we look up to in the past or or whatever it was, okay? Jesus is the Messiah. And it's also to say that his death was an atoning death. And that's to acknowledge your dependence on Jesus' death as the satisfaction of your sentence of death. To be saved, you have to say the same thing that the scriptures say. If you're saved, you'll say that he satisfied your sin debt. The cross is a good starting point. The proper evaluation of everybody's goodness, see? If you're okay and I'm okay, then why did Jesus have to go to the cross? That's a very important point to make sure you get across. Because people evaluate themselves fairly well, and they're very, it's very easy to forget all of our bad points. I'm the same as you. When you give an evaluation of yourself, you usually slough off the stuff that's not that great. and You put the other stuff forward. And we tend to do that, too. So the cross is the right evaluation of everybody's goodness. So it's also to say that you know, all men are sinful and that, that sin required death. A proper presentation of the gospel is going to draw the distinction that you are saying the same thing about your sin that the scriptures say, and then you'll know what you're worthy of, and that is what? Death. Okay, so that's an important starting point. And you're going to get to that in any number of ways. But this is a great example of our own witnessing model, that we make sure that we communicate this very important point, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. It has to do with its identity, has to do with your worthiness, and it has to do with the substitution that occurred on the cross. Remember Acts 2.23? It says this, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Here's the thing. To say this, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, is to say that this was no afterthought. Okay? The saving death of Christ was foretold long before in the scriptures. And Isaiah 53 certainly would be in Paul's mind here. As he thinks about 700 years before Christ, the lamb was foretold. He was going to come and he was going to be a substitution. And of course, you know, Acts 2.23 really makes it clear. Listen, either, Jesus, either God planned this whole thing by his predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, nailed him to the cross to take your, to take your place, or... This was a huge accident, and Jesus wasn't supposed to be killed, and now every, the plan's all messed up, and men just stepped in and murdered Jesus, okay? Now, we know it's not that second one, why? Right? Because according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins before the foundation of the world, First Peter says. He was slain. So, very important points to get across, and that really kind of flies in the face of the easy way that we approach our, our message, doesn't it? is we kind of skip over these hard doctrinal things. But listen, and they're not going to understand any of this without the Holy Spirit going to work. But the Holy Spirit's not going to be able to go to work, beloved, until you give that message, or they hear that message. It begins to go to work on the heart. Now verse 4, and that he was buried. Now proper presentation is going to have, uh, of the gospel, will point out some important distinctions. First, Jesus had truly died. And again, as was indicated in verse 3, if you're saying the same thing about Jesus that the scriptures say, then you'll know that Jesus had to be put to death for your sins. And I don't want to, I'm just not, I'm not trying to repeat myself for no reason, but they both overlap. So, the wages of sin is death, Romans six twenty three. It appears that according to the scriptures, it's implied here, just like it was actually said, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and then he was buried, and you can see that's implied according to the scriptures. So, Isaiah 53 certainly talks about his physical death, so it would be according to the scriptures, so it's not a stretch to say that. And that the burial then of Jesus, so this is another distinction, is an historical fact. Every gospel reper- refers to his burial, and the burial is consistent with the cultural precedence to take dead bodies down from the cross and bury them prior to nightfall, prior to the beginning of the Sabbath. And so we understand that it is a historical fact. The process was well known. Joseph of Arimathea, assisted by Nicodemus, laid Jesus in a borrowed tomb, and everybody knew where it was. And so Paul says, listen, this is part of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. And then this last wondrous part, verse uh, verse 4, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And again, a proper presentation of the gospel is going to point out some very important distinctions here as well. That is to say that the empty tomb is also a well-known fact. Since both supporters and opponents of Jesus asserted that Jesus was dead and thus buried, and his burial was a historical fact. They also affirm that the tomb was empty because it indeed was empty. A correct presentation of the gospel is going to include that fact. Sometimes the hardest part to say, Jesus dot, rise or rose again from the dead, Christ, uh, God raised him, because it, once again you identify yourself with those who have, who are going to be ridiculed. It's foolishness uh, to many. Um, so, the empty tomb is a well-known fact. Second important distinction would be that the death could not. Death could not hold Jesus. So you, uh, this witnessing model for us is very important. Paul says, the first priority, I gave you this gospel. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. These three things need to be included. And you remember that uh, this is the key element of belief in Romans ten nine. If you, in the subjunctive, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So it's key that we communicate that. And that's why Paul makes sure he hits it here. there's so much connected to that statement. His resurrection confirmed that he was was sinless, he was born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. Adam sinned, it had no hold on Jesus. He wasn't in Adam's stream. Since he was fully, truly dead, his resurrection was the reanimation of a corpse. He saw no decay, he was raised to a glorious life, and by trusting in his resurrection, all who believe will escape sin's punishment and be raised to life. Now, another distinction would be that Jesus was raised by the power of God. And it's important to point that out because that's what the scripture says. He was raised. Perfect passive indicative. It brings into view a very important maximum possible emphasis, the permanent result of the event, okay? By the power of God, Jesus the Messiah was raised and placed in a permanent position of reality. He's forever going to be the risen Lord. That will never change. Isn't that glorious? That's like looking at the constellations if they only came once every thousand years. It's like, oh, my. The wording is amazing. He is forever in that position. We need to sing about that more often, don't we? We need to to pray about that. We need to thank God about that more often. Hebrews 7.25 says that because of his death and his resurrection, Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Christ since he always lives to make intercession for them. Why? Because he's always in the position of the risen Savior and able to save forever. Why? Because he's forever in that spot too. And Hebrews 8.1 says that after being raised, he, was ta- he, take- he took a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Because that's his rightful place, isn't it? The perfect tense is used here in this way six more times in chapter, uh, in chapter 15, verses 12, 13, 14, 16, 17, and 20. And it's very important that Paul emphasizes this is permanent positions of Christ. Permanent positions for you and for me. And after that, only once in one other spot in the rest of the New Testament. So this perfect... Uh, Um, tense is used here six times, only once in any other place in the New Testament. His resurrection verified everything that God had said about him and everything he'd said about himself. And God has, as a result of raising Jesus, giving him a name above every name and the right to judge, and it's always going to be that way, see? And you'll never have to deal with a different judge and a different set of rules. You can just wonder at that statement, see? Jesus was raised and permanently placed in a position of the risen Lord and Savior forever. And so we communicate that because that's important. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, permanently raised forever to reign. And then according to the scriptures again, at the end of the passage, makes that distinction again that this was no afterthought. The resurrection of Jesus was foretold long before the scriptures. Isaiah 53 speaks of his life after his death. Psalm 1610, written by David, prophesying God's raising of Christ Jesus himself used Jonah's time in the belly of the fish to indicate a foreshadowing of how long he would remain dead. He told his followers many times that his resurrection would be accomplished. So not an afterthought. So the great saving act of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus was delivered to Paul as the first importance and delivered to the church in Corinth as the first importance, was delivered to the church at Berean and to every other person you witness to as of first importance. You give out what you also received. And although Jude is talking, uh, taking in some other problems, plaguing the church, he's certainly capturing the imperative nature of the gospel in the statement. Jude, verse 3, he says this. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, he says, I felt it necessary to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. It says content, and I should say contend. Sorry about that. So as you think about how the gospel is presented now and how it was presented by false teachers in the first century, it wouldn't be possible for Christians to have a common faith unless it was based on the message that Paul returns to here for the Corinthian church. Each statement has great implication and they are what must be presented for a proper hearing of the gospel. They are the vehicle for salvation. This is the fundamental set of facts that took a broken, scattered set of followers of Jesus and turned them into martyrs for the faith. This is the fundamental set of facts upon which the church was established. Now look at verses, let's look at verses 5 through 8, if you would, in Romans or, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to see some other details that verify the gospel, and in particular, to verify the resurrection. Read with me, starting in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve... After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep for seven. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Pause right there, because that next section becomes all, uh, its own thing, and it's going to take a life of its own, so we may not get to that today. Now, here's the thing. When we get to this point, it seems to be Paul saying... In case you have any questions about the bodily resurrection of Christ, because that's what he's going to focus on for the rest of the chapter. In case you have any questions about that, because that's the thing everybody has a question about, because nobody other than Lazarus and a few other people have experienced resurrection from the dead. Okay, So in case you have some questions about that, let me introduce you to the 500 plus people who saw him. And so that's where his kind of dialogue is going to go. And you can really see how Paul's mind works here. And, and you can just kind of loosely organize it this way. He seems to start with quality, then he moves to quantity, and then he begins in verse 8, the least likely. So he starts with quality, some people that everybody under, knows and, and very acquainted with and have some very huge impact in the church. And then he moves on to quantity, and just a quantity of people who saw him. And then beginning in verse 8, the least likely, of course. He talks about uh, Jesus' half-brother, and then he talks about himself. And so ones that would be less likely to be believed, and he doesn't want to uh, put all the testimony just on himself and Jesus' half-brother, a family member. So remember, as we mentioned before, this is the oldest proclamation of the resurrection, even likely even before the earliest Gospel of Matthew. So this is the first information of the order of his appearance. And now we're going to see some of these things, and I'll make some comments. It won't be exactly what you're used to in the Gospels. But Paul is making a point, and we'll just go ahead and go with what he says. Now, Paul... Uses a definitive term here. He says, he appeared. And that's very important. Um, he uses the term four times. It's implied two more times. So, in other words, as you can see in your notes, this isn't hearsay. This isn't, uh, you know, someone I know said they saw him kinds of statements, okay? Uh, or, we heard that he was resurrected and that would be great if it proves to be true kinds of statements. Jesus is intentionally revealing himself to people so there can be no doubt That he's resurrected. Remember, they didn't expect him to be alive. So it wasn't as if they were walking around looking for him. They were walking around not looking for him. Okay? Remember, as Jim said in Sunday school, if you were there, they just went out and went back to fishing. All that wonderful era, the three years with Jesus, that was all over. Now it's back to regular life. Okay? So they weren't looking for him. So he's intentionally coming around and revealing himself to people. So under quality, then, he starts with Cephas. That's Peter. And that's what we see in Luke 24, 33. So the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they, if you remember this, he finally uh, recognizes Jesus when he opened their eyes. And uh, in verse 33 says, and they got up on this very hour and returned to Jerusalem. So the, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're walking along with Jesus. He's chatting with them. And their hearts are stirred. They, they know he's, you know, he's, He's like, you don't know that Jesus died? I mean, they're they're like, what's going on here? And then finally he reveals himself to them, and then he he returns. Okay, and and they got up that very hour, and they returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen, and here's what it says, and appeared to Simon. So they show up with the disciples who are in hiding, and the first thing the disciples say to them, hey, by the way, the Lord appeared to Simon. So that's what we see in Paul's narrative. He says uh, that he appeared to Cephas. And we see that when the the guys on the road to Emmaus come back and meet with the disciples, that that's the first thing they're told. Hey, he's, he's he's appeared to Peter. Now, you remember that the other appearances of Jesus to individuals are given a good bit of detail. In fact, certainly the road to Emmaus, we've got tons of detail there. And earlier with Mary Magdalene, we've got a lot of detail there in the Gospels. But this appearance to Peter, by this time, which is already well known to the disciples because Peter's there with them. And obviously saying, hey, I, I, talked to, I talked to the master. We don't get any details about that appearance, that just that it occurred. We don't get to read about what got said. But we can imagine a little bit of what got said, can't we? Somewhere along the line, right after Jesus came out of the grave, he went right to Peter. Now, I'm not going to spend much time here because we don't have much time. But just because it's simply speculation and the narrative really is straightforward. He appeared to Peter and that's enough. But maybe Peter is listed first because of the way his last interaction with Jesus had gone. You think? And this is really, I mean, as you think about Jesus and his personality, as we understand it from the scriptures, this is very in line with what we would understand Jesus to do. Peter denies Jesus, then he goes out in what must have been nearly unbearable shame and emotional distress. He cries bitter tears of regret. I mean, he does exactly what Jesus said he's going to do. He denies Jesus three times. Jesus is there right when he needed, you know, right when he needed his followers to be with him. They're like distancing them, them, themselves from him. And Peter denies him three times. He goes out and he cries bitter tears. And his last memory of Jesus before his crucifixion was that he was, more, he was Peter, was more concerned about saving his own skin than standing up for his master. That's his last thought, okay? And, and we can all relate to that, can't we? You don't have to put up your hand. We understand that very well, don't we? We understand the fear of witnessing. We understand, we understand by our silence, disowning Jesus when we should speak. We understand that very well. We'd rather not admit, it, or not admit it, but we can relate well to Peter. So perhaps Jesus wanted to show love as a verb and demonstrate grace and forgiveness to Peter and just kind of start there. In Peter's mind, on resurrection morning, he can now never make up, make right what he did. As, as, as Jesus went to the cross and was put in the tomb, he can never make that right. And Luke 24 and John 20 both confirmed that the women came to the tomb, found it empty, came back, told the disciples, Peter runs to the tomb, John runs to the tomb, John's a little faster, gets there before him, and maybe Jesus lists Peter first because he has the most credibility and, and he has the most impact on the early church through the first 12 chapters of Acts. Maybe that's why he talks to him first. Maybe he talks to him first because he just wants to show love and, and uh, demonstrate grace and forgiveness. And what a difference that appearance made in Peter's life. Peter was the one Jesus was looking at when he said in Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock I'll build my church. You know, Peter's the small stone. He declared a foundational truth that Jesus was the Christ, son of the living God. And perhaps he comes to Peter because that foundational truth that Peter embraced before anybody else is going to be this foundational truth that the church is going to be built on. And so maybe it's just because he wants to show love. Maybe it's because uh, he has the most credibility. Or maybe he's listed first of all the disciples because Peter understood something of what Jesus was doing early on and best. And so he goes to him. And so Jesus appears to Peter and affirms all that the Holy Spirit has already revealed to him earlier, and that Jesus is the Messiah. And then this last part of verse 5, and and with it we'll we'll close for today. We have a missions moment. And then it says says this. He says to Cephas, and then to the twelve, at the end of verse 5. And between our passages from Luke 24 and John 20, it appears that we have that record, that he appeared to the twelve. And Luke 24, the disciples from the road are talking with the disciples who are hiding from the Jews, and Jesus appears to them. And John 20, verse 19, Jesus is recorded to have appeared to his disciples shortly after interacting with Mary and likely uh, with Peter, as we just saw, because he had John, he and John had run to the tomb after hearing the stone was rolled away. So the appearances are our general terms. We don't know why the women aren't mentioned here, uh, we, we, and we know that Thomas wasn't there the first time Jesus visited his disciples behind closed doors. But the issue here really is the quality and credibility of this testament that, listen, if you have some questions about whether Jesus was bodily resurrected, let me introduce you to 500 plus people who can affirm that indeed is the case. And he speaks to them in Luke 24, 44. And here's what he says. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he comes, he sees his disciples, here's what he says. Verse 44, 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written, that he, Christ, would suffer and rise again on the third day. There it is. What did Paul say? I delivered to you of most importance what I also received. Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried. and He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He comes to his disciples. It's the very thing he tells them. All the prophets talked about this. Here I am. Here's what they said. Here's the important thing that you need to give out. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. See. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 5 says that Jesus appeared to the 12, and he met with the disciples, and he explained the scriptures to them, and they became, ey- and they became witnesses. That's exactly who Paul is calling on, and saying, go talk to them. They saw Jesus alive. Everyone knew these guys. They're articulating the right theology, and out of that theology, the church is going to be born. They saw the living Christ back from the dead, and they were transformed because of that experience, and Paul explained. Paul affirms to the Corinthian church that Jesus' resurrection is not some cleverly devised tale. These guys saw him. Cephas saw him. And we can look at some of the reasons, perhaps, of the order, but the narrative is clear. And we understand that the Gospels back it up. We understand exactly what occurred and what Paul is trying to accomplish here. The three things have to be mentioned. And these other things, he says, in case you're wondering, there was 500-plus people that saw him alive. 1 Corinthians 1.17. Paul says this. He shows the main emphasis of his ministry. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. What is it? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so you're not creating things on your own and adding a whole bunch of other stuff in there Why? Then the cross of Christ would be made void. So it gets buried in all the other stuff. Paul says, I delivered to you what I received. I didn't make this up. This isn't hearsay. I got it. I gave it straight to you. I didn't add or interject anything of my own. The gospel is the power for salvation to all who believe. The Jew first and also the Greek. So whatever ministry you're involved in, beloved, whatever parachurch ministries you're involved in, make sure you evaluate what they say the gospel is. And if it isn't this, then it isn't doesn't have the power that it needs to have, okay? It's just right what it comes down to, Paul says. This is a first priority. Peter follows that up, 2 Peter 1.16. He says this. For we did, and here's the first one listed in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus revealed himself to. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, catch this, eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter just says it straight up. Listen, we saw him. You may think I'm stupid. You may think I'm a fool. Whatever you may think of me, this is it. I didn't make this up. Paul says, I delivered to you exactly what I received. Christ died on the cross according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised again according to the scriptures on the third day. So Paul starts with these guys. And he wants to give people every reason to believe, every verification. So he starts with some very well known people. They saw him alive, they know it's hard to believe but it's verifiable even 30-plus years later to the carnal Corinthian congregation that they can go look these people up and, and talk to them. So, beloved, as we, as we close, and I'd like to go further because there's just so much, this is so much fun, don't lose the wonder. Don't lose the power. You can't be too familiar with those truths. They are the ones that need to be communicated. You want to have, have success in the planting of seed of the gospel? Make sure it is the gospel so that people can evaluate their own true worth in relation to what Christ had to do. That's the biggest obstacle in today's world, that everybody's good. Everybody's decent. I'm a decent person. Listen, we have to overcome all of that, and we do that just by very simply giving out the gospel. Work it into your testimony. that It becomes the prominent thing that gets communicated. Don't obscure it with a whole bunch of other things and, and uh, cleverness of speech. That's not it. Okay? There may be places for you to have proofs and, and interject them, but the main thing is this. These three things have to be communicated. Renew the facts in your mind. Renew your passion to share these simple foundational truths. They are the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Amen. All right, let's um, let's close in prayer. I'm going to invite uh, Mike Corn up, and he's going to give a missions update for us. And then I'll have a few announcements after that, Mike, if that's okay. And I think John has an announcement as well. So let's do let's do. John, you'll come after Mike. Let me let me close in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for. Uh, an opportunity to be in your word. Thank you for the clear message of the gospel. Thank you for renewing in our mind, refreshing us in what it really is. Thank you for the desire that you have through Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, to give us every reason to believe. Witnesses, clearly described. Lord, we thank you for the power. You do it by, you go to work by your Holy Spirit, this vehicle, which is the gospel, and you draw them into yourself. I pray that we'll be a church that does this. We've embraced the Great Commission. Thank you today, too, for this day that we remember the sanctity of life that you've created. Lord, help us to have correct thoughts concerning this, to not be more lenient, more tolerant than you are about these things. And understand that it's not wrong, nor is it judgmental, to say what you say about them. Whether we're rejected, whether we're ridiculed, really matters very little. The fact that we give your truth out and make clear what the way is, is most important. And we pray all of this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said together, Amen.